We have been studying the letter of James for a month now. I want to remind you of the fact that James or Jacob, as the people called him at the time, was the first lead pastor of a first church in the Bible. He was a leading elder of a Jerusalem church. He was a man of a great integrity and respect. According to Jewish you know, legend, he prayed several hours in the temple of Jerusalem, and then when he was murdered by a Jewish religious mob, according to Josephus, he's a contemporary first century Jewish historian, people of Jerusalem were worried that the death of such a holy innocent man would bring a wrath of God upon themselves. And Josephus was implicitly connecting the death of James to the destruction of Jerusalem that happened 20 years later, later, AD 70. Last time in the first chapter of the book of James, we heard that James calling us to be doers of the word rather than just being hearers of the word. It is not just knowing the word of God, but doing and obeying word of God that makes us wise and righteous. Among the doing, do you remember what James was most concerned with? What did he call the pure religion or faultless faith? If you look at the James 1.27, James said, The religion that God our Father accepts as a pure and faultless is this, that look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Loving the poor and caring the helpless was the most holy act of believers because it also helped us be sanctified from the pollution of the world. James' sermon today is a continuation of the theme of loving and caring for the poor. Here, James teaches us specific points. He's moving into actual specific points with warnings and wisdom when it comes to loving poor and marginalized. So let us read James chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in a filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with the evil thought? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. 
speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives us freedom. Because a judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Flowers fall, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Amen. The thesis of James' sermon today is very clear. Verse 1, he said, My brothers and sisters, believers in glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. You know, ESV translation is more direct and clear. He said, My brothers, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus. The original Greek text actually is much acute. He said, do not, with a partiality, hold faith. It's like uh, somebody saying, do not hold torch of a fire with a, you know, oily hands, or do not swim in the ocean with an open, you know, fle- uh, uh, fresh, you know, f- uh, uh, wound, flesh wound. Here, James was giving us a very, very important and blunt warning. Here, James sees a favoritism or partiality as an enemy and a problem of a faith. Favoritism and faith cannot coexist. Favoritism is worse than coronavirus. You know, people talking about coexisting with the coronavirus. Because we have a vaccine and the antigen treatment. When it comes to favoritism, discrimination, and uh, partiality, there's no vaccine. Favoritism is not just a virus. It's a cancer that we need to completely eradicate and remove. Let me illustrate the importance of uh, this, you know, Faith and you know coexist. I mean, you know, incompatibility of a favoritism or discrimination and Christian faith. Uh, Ma- uh, Mahatma Gandhi, in his uh, biography, uh, self-biography, autobiography, uh, shared this story. Uh, when he was young, he attended a Christian prep school, and he actually fell in love, especially with a Sermon on Mount. Because he thought this teaching of Jesus can solve the problem of a caste system in India. So Gandhi one day finally visited a Christian church. And his first visit, the usher at the front gate told him only Europeans could join this service. You Indians must go to Indian churches. Dissolution, Gandhi walked silently away from the church, and later he wrote in his biography, if Christians have caste differences, I might as well remain a Hindu. Favoritism, partiality, preferential treatment, discrimination have no place in Christian faith and life. Our fellow Dallas, you know, Pastor Tony Evans said, Racism or discrimination isn't a bad habit, isn't a mistake, it's a sin. The answer is not sociology, but theology. So today, I want us to learn from Pastor James 
three reasons against the favoritism, or I call it three deterrent against the discrimination. And these three reasons also become three remedies for us to fight, uh, fight against every favoritism in its various colors and, and forms. So, first of all, what is a favoritism? In the Greek Bible, Greek text, favoritism is a prosopholempes. Prosopholempes. It is a combination of a compound word with two words. Prosophon, which means face. Lambano, which means take or receive. So it literally means receiving or taking face of a person. So favoritism is discriminating against someone at their face value or superficial appearance. So King James Bible translates this as a respect of a person. So Acts chapter 10, when Peter came to Cornelius' house and found that God accepted the Gentiles just like the Jews, what did Peter say? Now I know how true it is that God is not respecter of a person, or God is impartial. Now, what's wrong about liking someone's face more than others? Problem with that is, that's not how God sees us. God sees and judges us not based on our appearances, but based on our heart. Someone said, God created our skin tones with a beautiful variety, but all of our souls are the same color. I don't know about the color of our souls, but I do know color of everybody's blood is the same red. So why is the favoritism wrong to uh, James? Number one, favoritism conceals the glory of Christ. Favoritism conceals the glory of Christ. Here, James is contrasting human glory with a divine glory. James described Jesus Christ as a Lord of the glory. And according to biblical scholars, James was the only biblical writer who coined the term Lord of the glory. It is a significant fact because never in the Old Testament or New Testament, the word glory used by itself as a title of God or of a Christ. Yes, Old Testament says the Lord is glorious, but never makes a formal statement like a Lord of the glory. So why does James describe Jesus as the Lord of the glory? The next verse, verse 2, tells us, because back then and today, many Christians give too much glory to human beings, particularly rich and influential people rather than to God. So look at the verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and the poor man with the filthy old clothes. And if you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes, say, here is a good seat. You know, Greek word for the fine clothes is a lampra, from which we have a lamp. So literally means a shining clothes, a splendid clothes. According to New Testament, the gold ring was an emblem of upper-level Roman equestrian class. By the way, back then there was no middle class like today. There was a minority of rich people and majority of poor. Unlike today, when it is hard to distinguish the rich people from the poor people in clothing, people in the Greco-Roman world literally wore their social status on their bodies. Clothing, such as a toga, especially purple toga, was a reflection of their social, higher social class. 
James was illustrating the problem about sinful favoritism through our different responses to rich and the poor. You know, according to Howard Hendricks, the uh, late uh, professor of uh, practical theology at Dallas Theological Seminary, there are two kinds of uh, uh, intentional, intentional latecomers to the church. You know, who are those intentional latecomers? The first is uh, who wants to be seen by all. You know, I arrive, let the party begin kind of people. You know. The other is that those who don't want to be seen by all. The first is rich and proud. The second is a poor and shame. But what do we do? We exalt the rich. We eschew the poor. We, we offer the kissy for the rich. And uh, we tell the rich to sit wherever or, you know, stand there. Now, this story maybe seems a far, you know, far move from where we are today. But actually, I just uh, had a little bit of uh, research in the, in the sum, uh, this week, and uh, I found an interesting story, the history of pews in the church, which is actually horrible, horrible. So you're going to look at the uh, picture of a 16th century English church. There is, uh, do you see the, on top the pulpit? And then around there's a sort of a, a, a box, right? It's like a cubicle that, but with the benches. So about a 4,000 years, more than 1,000 years, especially during the uh, Middle Ages, there was no sitting in the church. People were all standing. Then around the 16th century, when Protestant Reformation took place, Sermon or preaching became a primary order of a service. And the Protestant reformers, they preached long. For instance, Martin Luther, German a reformer, he preached two sermons on Sunday. Same service. First sermon called the exegesis. Real detailed technical, you know, uh, biblical interpretation. Second, he called it exhortation which is a call for action and application. And both of each one of them lasted about an hour. So he preached almost two hours. So compared to that, you, you, you are easy. You, you are having easy people. You are very, you know, easy. But the, problem, but the people get starting, you know, tired. And among the tired congregation, rich people, once again, they, 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 they found a way. That was, they went to the pastor, and the pastor, you know, went on to rent a part of the space in the sanctuary. We'll pay monthly dues. And pastors who need an extra income, yes. So they began to have these cubicle benches for, the, for them to sit, their family. And some of them, they locked their benches, I mean, their, their cubicles. That's the how the pews entered, the, and eventually, pastors and church leaders said, that's not good. We need to have everybody to sit. And that's how Pew came. So, you know, the story of uh, sitting in the church is a really sad. You know, we progressed. We forgot. Now, many of us feel that this verse does not apply to us, especially today, because we are living in an overall very polite culture. And we are not mean to, you know, visitors. If you are a visitor to Forest and uh, we are mean, I mean, anybody is mean to you, please come and tell me, okay? Please tell me the person's name. 
and uh, I will do revenge for you. Okay. Now, but how about our attention to the rich and famous? I'm afraid that contemporary American evangelical churches are very deeply infected by celebrity culture. You know, recently I had a conversation with a Caucasian, you know, Anglo Texas Baptist pastor who told me about a successful fundraising his, uh, you know, uh, church. To make a long story short, he knew someone who knew Kirk Cameron, the star of a sitcom Growing Pain. So he contacted him to speak at his church over the weekend, Saturday evening and Sunday morning. My colleague told me he was so surprised by speaking fee that Kirk Cameron laid out. But he was more surprised the amount they raised through <laughs> Kirk Cameron that was the most successful fundraising they ever had. Celebrity culture is deeply embedded in today's Christian culture. That's why the First Baptist Dallas, they proudly advertised their fall concert with a list of all the, you know, uh, dope words, you know, artists like uh, David Crowder, Phil Wickham, King and Country, and so forth. By the way, do we really have to have a professional musicians to praise God better? I do appreciate their, you know, music and so forth. But do we? I love our forest professional praise team. Yes. To me, our praise team are doubly professional. They have their own market professions, and they profess Jesus as their Lord. They may lack musical skills because they, don't have, they have full-time jobs to attend. They don't have enough time like a professional uh, musicians. But their spirit and heart to praise God is better than anyone. Amen? And I, today, I want to, I want to advertise openly that our monthly praise and prayer evening. So we used to have a first Monday of uh, each month to have a praise and a prayer meeting at my house. But because of pandemic, we didn't. And now we're going to have first time in the church. So we'll have a first one tomorrow, uh, October 4th, uh, 7 p.m. And at the end, we'll celebrate the communion. So those of you itching for communion, Please come and join us. Now, as a James condemns our worldly favoritism, we must reflect his expression, the Lord of the glory, Lord of the glory. I was rereading a book called uh, Christianity in Jewish Terms and uh, finding some of the uh, new, new facts that I didn't know before. And the one essay talks about the uniqueness of a biblical anthropology. You know, according to Genesis 1.27, it said God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. According to Jewish people, God's image is none other than his glory. So when God made us in his image, God made us a glorious being. And this term, you know, image, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was used just like a divine glory, and uh, it's connected to divinity. So, for instance, you all heard that an Egyptian king named Tutankhamun, right? Tutankhamun. Do you know what name Tutankhamun means? 
is a living image of Amun. Amun is an Egyptian god. So while Egyptians render divine glory only to the kings, the Bible reveals that God gave his glory not just men, but women. You know, in the time when woman was completely non-human almost. And this is also why Apostle Paul said in Romans 3.23 3, that we all sinned, have sinned, and the fell short of the glory of God. God made us glorious beings, but throughout disobedience sin, we lost original glory of God. Then what happened? Good news is that God recovered our lost glory. How? By sending his son, Jesus Christ. So John 1.14 says, The word became a flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, glory of a one and only son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So eternal son of God did not mind praying his glory in the filthy poor container called flesh. Why? So that we, also flesh beings, can have his glory. That's why, you know, uh, Apostle P, uh, Paul said in the 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that though he was rich, he became, for our sake, he became a poor. So through his poverty, we become rich. In another word, in order to give us a glory, Christ took our flesh and became a human being for good. That's the glory we have. So when we give our attention to worldly glory, you know, materialistic glory, we conceal the glory of our Redeemer and our own eternal glory that God purchased for us. Now let me go to the second point, why favoritism cannot coexist with the faith. Favoritism contradicts the character of God who chose the poor. Look at the verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. Here in the verse 5, James was actually rephrasing the teaching of Jesus, his half-brother. You know, do you guys remember I told you that the book of James is that a sort of combination of a Sermon on Mount and the book of Proverbs. You know, James creatively putting Jesus, you know, teaching in a very pro, you know, in the, pro, in the form of a wisdom literature. So nickname of the book of James is a wisdom, proverb of the New Testament. Now, you know, James chapter 2 verse 5 that God chose those who are poor in the eyes of the world so that they can inherit the kingdom is very similar to Matthew 5.3, which says, The blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. God loves the poor not because they are better human beings than rich people, but because they appreciate God's grace more than others. God loves everyone, but not everyone appreciates God's grace. The poor in the spirit are those who recognize their utter need for God's help. And now, James, after saying this, uh, repeating Jesus' first beatitude, 
He's contrasting, while God is choosing the poor, you are dishonoring the poor. So he is kind of contrasting, choosing the poor and, uh, uh, you know, dishonoring the poor. Now, when you choose someone, that means you want to get close to that person. Close enough to love and honor. That's why in the wedding, after, you know, wedding vow is uh, exchanged, what do they say? They do, uh, you know, a ring, ring exchange and confession that I give you this ring as a, you know, sign of my vow and with all I am and all that I have, I will honor you and love you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Choosing someone means honoring. And honoring means you're getting close. In contrast, dishonoring, you know what dishonoring means? Keeping a distance. Keeping a distance. You know? Because the less I see you, less I have to deal with you. That's the dishonoring. And I must say that this is where our current politics fail. Both conservatives and liberal politics fail to do justice with the poor. You know, conservative politics emphasize individual responsibility and personal ethics while ignoring the social ethics. They say that poor people need to experience a market reality just like everyone else. They must work hard like everyone else. If their work hard does not meet their need, they need to work harder or smarter. And God helps those who help themselves. In contrast, liberal politics, they emphasize social ethics and social responsibilities while neglect, neglecting personal morality. Look at all, you know, democratic, you know, politicians, you know. They are, you know, they are friends of celebrity. They are having all the fun, you know. They just propose a bigger government prog program such as uh, more social workers to help poor, more public housing for poor, more subsidies for poor. In other words, it is a government's, you know, responsibility, not mine. On my responsibility, to both of the, those people, you know, who will make the government to work for the poor. You know, recently someone from uh, Bay Area taught me a new term. Some of you might know, but they call the NIMBYs. How many of you know NIMBYs? You know, Bay Area is a very interesting place. They, you know, are you guys know dinkies? Double income, no kid, dinkies? That's how, you know, they can buy small cottage in the Bay Area. Now they have a NIMBYs. NIMBYs means not in my backyard. Not my in backyard. These are the liberal people like uh, many in Palo Alto, California who support, uh, you know, Black Lives Matters and critical race theory and care for the homeless people, but they don't want to see them in their backyard. They don't want to deal with them in their own community. It's called the NIMBYs. We have a selfish politics in one hand and the superficial, hypocritical politics in the other hand. But before we judge extreme right and the left, political right and left, let us really examine ourselves. Are we honoring or dishonoring the poor that God cares for? Do we really want to get close to them and serve them? Or are we just uh, another pious nimbus? And I must confess, 
my, uh, my heart, you know, the, I have to confess my fear here. Finally, last week, uh, I had a point, you know, I made a, I scheduled a meeting with uh, our mission partner in Bolivia, Pastor, you know, Bernabe Choi. Choi. And uh, he and his wife came to U.S. to get a, a vaccination. So they are actually coming back from Houston tomorrow. So he, we are meeting on Tuesday for lunch. And the uh, last text he sent me was, uh, Pastor Paul, I'm so eager to see you very soon. So much to share. And it didn't really make me excited, but more apprehensive. You know why? Because uh, two years ago, we talked about doing a short-term mission in Bolivia. And then last year, pandemic happened, so everything was canceled. But during the pandemic, Pastor Bernabe Choi was extremely diligent and incredibly fruitful. He multiplied more than 10 you know, house churches. I think there are house churches, like uh, several tens of house churches. And also, do you guys remember Bolivia House Church? We gave them, a, you, know, a, you know, we donated a good amount for their K-12 private Christian school. He's running a Christian school for several hundreds of, uh, you know, students. And then last year, they also reached out to the prison, and now finally they're building a church in the prison. And he is excited to share. And my fear is that I have to go there. And who's going to come with me? Our natural tendency is staying comfortably in our own ministry zone or life zone. You know, but God calls us getting close to poor. That's where my heart is. Let me move quickly to the third point. The last reason against the favoritism or deterrent to the discrimination is a very grave warning. I feel like James took off his glove and the pounding his uh, you know, audience harder than ever with the scriptures. And that is none other than favoritism cancels the completeness of the law. Look at the verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, are convicted by the law as a law lawbreaker, for whoever keeps the whole law Yes, stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery, also you shall not uh, murder. If you, do not, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit a murder, you have become a lawbreaker. You know, for Jewish people, lawbreaker, being somebody called you lawbreaker, that is the worst curse or condemnation. Because the Jewish identity is inseparable from the law. For Jewish people, law of Moses is their life. Breaking the law of Moses means giving up their identity and their future as a God's people. And James tells his Jewish audience, if you show favoritism, you have become a lawbreaker. Twice in verse 9 and 11, he warned them, your favoritism make you lawbreaker. Now, here we know several uh, 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 interrelated truth about the law. You know, verse 8, James said that if you really keep the royal law, royal law, 
And the royal law is none other than love your neighbor as yourself. So from that we know the law sums up in love. And, uh, you know, this uh, quotation he got, love your neighbor as yourself, it came directly from the Leviticus, 1918. You know, the just, this is a great, you know, if you forget everything about Leviticus, just remember Leviticus 1918. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the interesting thing, in that whole passage, starting at uh, verse 15, let me read a verse 15. It says, you shall not do injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you, you shall judge your neighbor. And later he said, love your neighbor as yourself. So what is, uh, you know, Moses is saying? Partiality and loving your neighbor cannot work together. In order to love your neighbor, you have to be impartial. You have to get rid of uh, discrimination and uh, partiality in your heart. And uh, that's exactly, you know, problem of uh, many people. You know, when you come to love our neighbor, we all say, yeah, I love my neighbor. But not everybody is my neighbor. Only those who few are my neighbors. Do you remember Jesus teaching of a parable of a Samaritan? You know, what was the Jewish lawyer was bragging? When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he said, I did that all. I, I did. And then that's when Jesus gave a parable of a Samaritan. And then, you know, he said, oh, Samaritan is not my neighbor. <laughs> and, but Jesus cleverly said, do likewise. You know, when Jesus says, go, which one was a real neighbor? He didn't say Samaritan. One he did good. And Jesus said, well, you go and do the same. Our problem of a loving neighbor is that always we select few to be to love. You know, even though God gave a you know, neighbor by definition, anyone near you is a neighbor. Anyone God brought to your life is a neighbor. And God loves everyone and wants to bless everyone without discrimination. Now, the term royal law is a little bit interesting because the biblical commentators, they kind of argue, you know, about the meaning of a royal law. So one commentator, one group of commentators, a royal law means supreme law because it's a king's law. It's like a king's law is a higher than governor's law. In U.S., federal law supersedes the state law. It's a supreme law. And then other people say, no, 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 it's not a supreme law. It is a special law. It's a law within the royal family. You know, that you have to, you know, keep. I think both of them right. And I think this royal law is both supreme and special. Because it's a love of God that God has us to born as a children of eternal, you know, heavenly king. And then children of heavenly king, we are supposed to love one another. Now, another point about law here is the law is a holistic and that we cannot pick over the other. Law of God means that we have to keep all of them. And here, you know, more than just all, all of them, you know, the thing is this. Law of God means not just a rule, but it's a relationship. Law of God is not about the regulation. It's about relationship. Most important thing about law of God is a relationship. So we cannot approach law like we do with the restaurant menus. You know, restaurant, you pick some menu and they leave the rest of them in the menu. When it comes to law of God, you cannot selectively pick and choose. You have to 
you know, practice all of them. And now, with this indivisibility of the law, James gives us very, very important, important awakening warning. Here, James gives an example of a commandment that he juxtaposed, you know, put us side to side with a favoritism, war, adultery, and murder, right? Verse 11, you know, God said, do not commit adultery, do not commit a murder. If you just break the one, you, you, you are lawbreaker, right? Why did he bring all of a sudden murder and adultery to this, uh, you know, topic of a favoritism? It's because we all know murder and adultery are horrible sins. But we think of favoritism or discrimination is a no big deal. Because everybody, you know, is, has their own favoritism. We say nobody is perfect. Everyone is a racist to some degree, including Pastor Paul. And I, I, I admit that. You know, while that's true, that doesn't mean that we condone discrimination. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, nobody is born racist. Nobody is born racist. But society teaches it. Yes, nobody is born racist. But they are born in the racist family. And that's how they become a racist. So we need to repent and exercise the demon of discrimination and the racism and the favoritism now so that our children and their children can live safer and better. I want to say this. Our country, in the great, great critical juncture, if we continue this uh, divided, you know, state, we're going to be housed already divided, but it will be housed completely fractured. Divided, we fall. Surely, divided, we will fall. And I'm afraid the Christian will be a wrong side in this case, unlike a civil war. And my, you know, pride as an American citizen is this. America, we have a great legacy of a willingness to correct our mistake. That's why we fought the you know, civil war. That's why we went through the civil rights movement and so forth. We are not perfect, but we are persistent, seeking the truth, and the you know, pursuit of liberty and the happiness for, you know, everything. America is not a perfect, but we are resilient for the goodness and the righteousness of God. And I hope we really, really humbly, with a prayerfully seek the truth together. Not just my own community, but for everybody. If anybody is discriminated, we're in trouble because we are living in the same, same land. Finally, uh, not finally, I'm sorry, fourth point. When we obey the law, James said we'll have God's blessing called the freedom. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to judge by the law that gives freedom. 
For James, law does, does not mean law and control. Law of God is not to control us, but actually law of God is all about freedom. It's to free us. Free for what? Free from sin. Free from the evil desire. Free from the older selfishness. Make us free for loving and caring for each other. Finally, James concludes his uh, call against favoritism and discrimination with a topic of a judgment. Once again, issue of discrimination is a deadly serious, and he connects the love of neighbor to mercy. Verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, here we need to recognize, we have to be careful. James was not commanding us to generate and give mercy to other people in our own goodness. That's not what I was saying. James was telling us, remember, you receive mercy from God. Now you render that mercy to other people. And the one thing about mercy is that when you really experience mercy in your desperate situation, you know how precious mercy is, and you want to share and extend that mercy when you see somebody near you have the, you know, need it. God gave us mercy, and then, you know, his mercy grows in each one of us like a planted seed. Being a Christian means, especially in the forest, means a trees of a mercy. Let me close my sermon with uh, my uh, little testimony. Uh, you're going to see my uh, professor at Princeton, Daniel Miliori, second-generation Italian-American. Sweet, sweet guy. He not only taught me about theology and Karl Barth, but also made me a better uh, uh, a teacher. I was really touched by his extra gracious, you know, mercy. Do you guys remember my testimony of writing a paper on the Karl Barth a while ago? So it was his class. And uh, toward the end, I really need a few more days to, you know, finish. Time is running, so I went to his office and, uh, oh, Dr. Miliari, I just, you know, I'm asking a few more days of extension. Unfortunately, by then, you know, he had to turn the grade. So a lot of professors in those kind of cases, you know, they don't get. You know what he said? Oh, Paul, don't rush. I'll just turn it incomplete. You have uh, two months to finish. He gave me extension of two months. By the way, that's a curse. I don't want to drag the thing for two months. I have to, so, so I turn the paper next week. But... I was so relieved. When I left that office, I was so grateful. And then I made a re you know, resolution that when I become a professor, I will do the same. And then when I was, so when I, so at DVU, I gave an extension to everybody, seriously. And then, a few years ago, there was American Academy of Religion, and uh, every school, host a reception in the uh, Sunday evening for their uh, former, you know, PhD students and, uh, you, know, prof you know, theologians or professors come together and have a reunion. So I went to Baylor because they provide the best food, and I, I went to Princeton because they provide the best adult drink. So I went to, you know, Princeton. I didn't know there was, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, my professor Miliori was retiring. So there was a line of his former students uh, you know, shaking his hand, uh, personally thanking him. So I, you know, I definitely was there. He was my advisor. He was so kind. He wrote a wonderful, you know, recommendation and so forth. 
So when I got to him, I told him, remind him about, you know, his uh, gracious paper extension and say, I said, Dr. Miliori, I also extend the same grace and mercy to my students at DBU. You know, when I said that, he held my hands again, stronger this time, with a tearful eyes. He said, Paul, you made my day. I want my students not just be profound theologians, but pastoral, caring ministers. You made my day. That's when I learned that my, what delighted my professor was not my academic success, but my service as a servant of God. And that's when I realized that this man is a genuine Christian pastor. And also, the reason I'm sharing is that what delights our Heavenly Father is not for us, our church, becoming a mega church, but a merciful, caring community. You know, we named our church Forest. For, why? Forest is not a gated community. We are not fortress. We are forest. It's open. Hopefully not just open. It's inviting. Anyone has a need, come. Join us, whatever form and shape, especially our house churches. You know, Sunday is still very kind of hard to interact, but you come to our house church. I invite you to house church. You don't know which church to go, talk to me. We love you to, to find our you know, people in the house church. And there are a lot of actions and love happens. Let us make our life faithful, merciful followers of a glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.